0: Podglomerate original.
1: Have you guys heard of this drug cocktail called cheese? This is
0: comedian Kumail
2: Nanjiani playing Kumail Nanjiani in the film The Big
1: Sick. I saw all these news reports, so I looked up what cheese is, and cheese is a mixture. Cheese is Tylenol PM and heroin. (laughs) So really, it's heroin. Heroin's doing the heavy lifting. (laughs) Just do the heroin, it's very powerful. You already have heroin. (laughs) Is Pakistan in the house? (laughs) Really? You're not from Pakistan. I would have noticed you.
2: Why are we listening to this? The reason is this episode is about Chicago, specifically in this maybe 10 year period starting around 1999.
1: The scene in Chicago, uh, when I started, it was really, really good.
0: Like, this is Kamel Nanjiani talking on Kevin Pollock's chat show.
1: Like a lot of the people that I started with, like me, it was me, Hannibal Burris, Pete Holmes, T.J. Miller. Like a lot of people are doing really well now that started in Chicago, uh, right when I started. That's a crazy list of people, Andrew. That's not all. Matt Bronger. I met Kyle Kinane. He was one of my first comedy friends. John Roy was, I remember, one of the first ones who sort of broke out. John
2: Roy was there just as the stand-up scene in Chicago was about to undergo
3: a huge transformation. My first open mic was 1997. I
0: started at the height of the comedy bust. And this is where we begin our episode. So, welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven.
3: <laughs> What's weird to me is that when nerds create fantasy worlds, and we are the only people that do, We create fantasy worlds where we would die in minutes. It doesn't make sense. It takes a long time to write a book. And a fantasy world can be anything you want it to be. Why make up a world where the good-looking strong people win again? make a world where we come out on top, where it's like, your knowledge of Bruce Campbell trivia is impressive, Lord Stantz, but only he who eats the most pretzel combos may sit on the beanbag throne. The first time I ever did comedy, there were 13 people on the list and 13 people in the room. That's John Roy. Chicago at the time was an improv town. Second City, 600 students at any given moment. Improv Olympic, 450 students. Annoyance Theater, 250 students. All of the Tribune, all of the Reader, it was all geared toward telling you how great improv was. And everybody in the improv schools, with a couple exceptions, would kind of think of stand-up as this kind of, you know, ah, well, yeah, that's what they did in the 60s, and, but, but Second City, improv, this is the way of the future. You know, obviously, we're getting everyone on Saturday Night Live, this is what you do if you're in Chicago.
4: I was obsessed with Chicago because I was obsessed with improv. And I was obsessed with Second City. This is Pete Holmes. And I read Truth in Comedy by Sharna Halpern and Del Close. They say something, which is that stand-ups are like traveling salesmen. And they go around and they sell their jokes. There's so much potential in stand-up to be as beautiful and artistic as as improv. Having Google on your phone is like having a drunk know-it-all in your pocket. There's no time for mystery or wonder or to feel anything. You're just like to the graham cracker? Here comes Google. "Ah! Ah!
5: Ah!"
4: And we feel nothing because the time between not knowing and knowing is so brief that knowing now feels exactly like not knowing. So life is meaningless. I've literally been in bed in the morning by myself, just like, where's Tom Petty from? But I feel nothing! There was a time, and I don't mean to get all Andy Rooney on you guys, but there was a time that if you didn't know where Tom Petty was from, you just didn't know! And you felt that yearning, and that deficit in your being. And you'd go around and ask actual people in front of ice cream parlors and libraries. And you'd be like, hey, where's Tom Petty from? And they're like, you know, I don't know. I've never thought about it. I don't know. And now I'm impregnated with wonder. And then they go and ask people, Until one fateful day, you see a girl wearing a Heartbreakers t-shirt, you'd rush up to her and be like, hey, where's Tom Petty from? And she'd tell you, Florida. And a wave of endorphins and pleasure and meaning would wash over you. And that's how you met your wife. Do you understand? Your wedding song was refugee. It's so much more alive and sexy and organic than just a salesman going like, this knife can cut through a penny. Like, fuck off, Like, that's why I think it's wrong. I do think it's right because it's a little bit lonely, it's lone wolf, it's isolated. and And
2: you've seen many comics on autopilot selling jokes. Of course.
3: So the stand-up scene was just this little rump, tiny little appendage of the city, got no press. The only thing about stand-up was like a a little column in the reader at the back of where the bands were would tell you where the stand-up was, and that was it.
6: The first couple open mics I did were poetry open mics. This is Nate Craig. Poetry was a bigger deal than comedy at that point. In Chicago, it was. This is the slam started there, so people kind of revered it. But it was the
3: the thing, the poetry slam at the Green Mill. That so I I started going to like poetry mics. I mean, comedy mics were brutal. Ninety nine, two thousand, they were brutal.
7: Comedy in Chicago at like ninety nine, two thousand, comedy wasn't a popular thing to do. It wasn't. Like, it, it wasn't going to get you laid. It wasn't going to make you... It was it an was outcast kind of thing to do. And that's Kyle Kinane. So I, I went to an open mic called the Red Lion Pub on Lincoln Avenue, uh, run by Mark Geary. I went there and I watched. It was upstairs. And because I watched for like two months before I tried it. I was just, just going to go to the open mic. I was fascinated with the people that I'd do poorly and then still come back the next week. I'm like, well, if they can do that bad, yeah. if they can embarrass themselves... And then come back the next week. And then I realized, like, nobody cared that they did bad last week. If you do the same thing the next week, then, yeah, go, just go screw. But if you, like, took those jokes and worked on them for the next week to see if they got better, that's what this is for.
8: Ladies and gentlemen,
7: welcome! Thank you very much. All right. All right. But, um... Thank you very, very much. Uh, it's good to be taping a special in Chicago, uh, back in my hometown. This feels great. M- mostly, I'm I'm glad about everybody who comes out and comes see me do comedy. Once in a while, there's a we're uh, odd pickle. Like uh, I was in Louisiana, and there was a fella in the front row. Uh, his, uh, he, he, uh, he's like a real unpainted juggalo-type dude. (laughs) (laughs) You can pick him out sometimes, like, oh, man, you see him in the raw, you're like, ah, somebody hosed you off for a job interview, didn't they?
3: (laughs) We went out on our own to just kind of start trying stand-up. We would do these bar shows and, uh, try to make it work, and we had about two that ran in the city. There was a showcase called The Elevated, where the train went by every... 20 minutes. So everybody was up there just trying to do their their train bit because you had to, you know, whatever bit you did would be interrupted halfway through. Uh, there was a thing at Second City called Midnight Bible School that
9: Matt Dwyer put on. I did it above Second City at a, one of their side theaters.
0: That's Matt Dwyer.
9: It was a experimental comedy show and the rule of it was you get 10 minutes. You could do whatever you want. It just couldn't be anything you've ever done before. And I would invite stand-ups and Second City people and, like, people from other sort of, you know, theaters and stuff in Chicago. And it was just the whole point of it was to, like, sort of push yourself and do stuff. So, like, stand-ups would be doing characters. Improv, people would be doing stand-up. People would be doing sketches. And kind of the show struggled. And then one time... It was New Year's Day. Louis Black was in town and he heard about the show and somebody called me and they're like, hey, Louis Black wants to you do your show. And I was like, oh, I wasn't going to have one today because <laughs> it's New Year's Day. But like it word got out, he had a bad turnout for some reason at Zanies, and he was really pissed. And then he came to my show and it was just jammed and he was thrilled. And, he, and from that point on, the show was like anytime somebody was in town, like Tina Fey did it, Adam McKay did it, Jeff Garland did it, like uh, Sarah Silverman. (laughs) Like it was like this year or two of this show being like crazy busy. This
3: is a scene of like 20, 30 people and they're all trying to do whatever they think alternative comedy is without having known anything but a, a story in the New York Times. Like, you know, we had, this is before Invite Them Up, this is before the Comedy Death Ray album. There was no way to know what it actually was in the Luna Lounge or in Largo. We just were like approximating what it might be. This is a direct outgrowth of the alternative comedy scene where
2: comedians became their own gatekeepers. They created their own shows. It's not like when I was started. I mean, you had to become a regular at a club, Catch a Rising Star, or the improvisation, or the comic strip. You just shoehorned
3: your way into these comedy clubs. The big club at the time, Zanies. They didn't have an open mic. The owner of Zany's felt that nobody really knew what an open mic was, but they would knew that they saw bad comedy and the science at Zanies. So we had to go make our own scene in bars because there was no club holding our hand.
9: It's a very do-it-yourself town. It always has been. Like, so it's just people are just like, fuck it, we'll do a show here. And like Steppenwolf Theater, which is now infamously famous, you know, they were a storefront theater and they were just like, screw this, you know, we're not going to participate in the... The whatever the system is, and that's kind of what happened in Chicago. For many years, there was one club, and people got really pissed off about it, so they just started doing their own stuff. In
3: 1999, Mark Geary started an open mic at the Red Lion, which is an English pub on the north side. And for whatever reason, this thing explodes, and there's real people there. There'd be an audience of like 30, 40 actual Chicago citizens that came out to this Not bar. comedians. Not comedians, real people wanting to see a show. And you know, every week they got Kyle Kinane, Dwayne Kennedy, Matt Bronger. I mean, TV dinners should literally be called Lonely
0: Man dinners. That's all they are. This is a clip of Matt Bronger from his album, Shovel Fighter.
3: Like I want to see the ad for Lonely Man brand TV dinners. Just a lumberjack in his cabin by himself, looking out the window to future he'll never have a single tear running in his rapidly graying beard. He's like 32, not even old enough. And the the theme song kicks in. No need to open a can. Grab yourself a lonely man. (laughs) And then a far away shot of the cabin and a single gunshot, lonely man. (laughs) So, like, that
0: Red Lion room, but that only lasted a year and a half, leaving a void uh, in the open mic scene on Monday. And this is around the time that Kumail Nanjiani got involved.
1: I looked up in the newspaper open mic nights, and I just made a note of each one that was close to me. And I just started going. This is Kumail on the Box Angeles podcast. There was one at the Red Lion pub, and that was closing down as I was there. So I did it once. Then I would go to Lion's Den... It was a show every Monday night. Everyone would go put their name in a hat and it gets pulled out and it would be like 60 comedians. And this was the center of the Chicago stand up scene.
4: So every day I would be going to Benigan's and working the day shift. That's why Benigan's was great because I could work 11 to 4. And I would get off the Irving Park Brown line and I would walk to my apartment. The Irving Park Brown line is right by a little place called The Lion's Den. So I would walk past The Lion's Den, L-Y-O-N-S, and it would say Monday Comedy, Tuesday Trivia, whatever, Wednesday Sport, whatever, I don't know. But it just said Monday Comedy. That's all it said. It didn't say open mic. It didn't say stand-up. It didn't say improv. It just said Monday Comedy. I remember that vividly. I walked by it every day, like resisting it. Every day, my route home was walking by, not just an open mic, the Chicago open mic, the biggest one, the cornerstone of what we're talking about was on my route home. I am feeling so much gratitude right now. I would walk past that place and I I would for months without even going in. One week I walked in just to look. I just wanted to see the room. That was like the first step. So I went in the back just to like, see if I could imagine myself going there. And then the next week I sign up. I, I felt like I did all right. I felt like I, I held my own. And then the next night I did the Cubby Bear and I met Kumail. Uh, and this over to my left was the Cubby Bear, which was the second open mic I ever did. And it's where I met Kumail Nanjiani. And this is Addison. And you could walk to his place, which was right down here. We used to meet up there and do jokes together. We also used to meet up and write jokes at Penny's Noodles. Who cares? There's no plaque. But I'm telling you, that's how vivid it is starting comedy in Chicago. Uh, And then nervously pacing in front of the cubby bear.
3: In 2001, when the Den really got going, I had been doing stand-up for about four years. I had done Zanies uh, and about three other clubs in the Chicago area. I worked professionally, and by 2001, I was already touring.
7: John Roy is still one of the best joke writers that that exists, and like comedy technicians. Here's Kyle Canaan again, and uh, he was a guy who was like doing these crazy triple runs, and he was like the. They're your friend that became, like, a, a war journalist. <laughs> Everybody else is like, "Hey, eh, man, we're having beers. What'd you do this weekend? Uh, Twelve hours out to Billings. Yeah, I had to go from Butte <laughs> to Minneapolis through a blizzard, made 50 bucks. Some old lady flashed her tits at me.
3: I was basically working in, like, the, the skeleton left over from the boom days. So I would do... Two nights in a hotel bar. I would do, uh, you know, a Best Western in Jackson, Michigan, and I was working with these guys. I, I remember they would they would always have gimmicks. Like I worked with the human jukebox, and I worked with the whip cracking cowboy, and I worked with the master of the Boston props. And I would work with these guys, and, and then I would come back to Chicago, and then I'd go to the Lions Den, and I'd be like, okay, something's off here. Like I'm going out on the road with these headliners and then I would come back to the den and uh, I would see T.J. Miller, Kamel Nanjiani, Kyle Kinane, Jared Logan, Brooke Van Poplin, uh, you know, Hannibal Burris, all these incredible comedians. And I'm going Pete Holmes, you know, Nick Vaderot, And I'm sitting in the back going, you know, I, I don't think I'm crazy. These guys are way better and the headliners that I'm opening for.
1: You guys know that thing where they're trying to sneak in like creepy stuff, dark stuff into kids' movies. You know what I'm talking about? Like they're trying like sneak in grown-up stuff. This is a clip of Kamel Nanjiani from his album Beta Male. You, like in Lion King, they say in the sandstorm you can read the word sex. Yeah, or like in Wizard of Oz, they say in the corner you can see somebody hanging. I wish sometimes it would happen the other way around. You know like, it would be like, uh, did you guys see that movie, Hostel? You know that scene where the guy's Achilles tendon and he's bleeding everywhere and he can't walk? In the corner, you can see a kid tasting cotton candy for the first time. <laughs> it is so beautiful, you guys. Watch it every day.
4: So I'm doing uh, lines then, and 9-11 happens and the Monday after 9-11, September 16th. Everyone was like, are they going to talk about it? Do we talk about 9-11? Almost everybody talked about 9-11. And I was floored. Everybody started taking comedy way more seriously.
7: Camille's like... Was starting right after 9-11, and to see him, you know, coming in with his, you know, with a Pakistani accent and not addressing it, not doing easy jokes about nine eleven. Like, no, you're just a good comedian from the beginning. He's always re- re- writing these weird, silly jokes. They're just good jokes. That's where everybody's like, this is a good comic. He's not going for easy stuff. He's not. Oh, what the one thing everybody's trying to make jokes about. And he's like, okay, are you going to talk about the fact that you're a brown person with an accent and the whole country's up in arms about this? like, nope, there's a joke about me reading somebody's crossword puzzle over their shoulder on the L and about what the plural of octopus might be. I'm like, this is great.
3: You know, every Monday you'd be like, what do I have that's going to make these people get up from the front bar? All the other comics. Put their burgers and fries down and go back and watch you. And I remember when people would first start to pop, people you'd been ignoring. And they'd be like, you gotta come watch Hannibal. And I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, yeah, you gotta come watch Hannibal. And then I would go back and sure enough, I don't know what had changed, but all of a sudden Hannibal was a brilliant comic that I had to watch.
0: So I have a situation in my apartment right now. I have a surplus of pickle juice in my apartment. This is a clip of Hannibal Burris from his album, My Name is Hannibal. There's too much pickle juice, cause after the pickles are gone, I don't like throwing out the pickle juice. It just feels wasteful. So lately I've been dipping my fingers in the pickle juice and I flick it on my sandwiches for flavor, you know.
10: Everybody was there every week. So you couldn't do the same stuff all the time. This is Nick Vaderat. So it, it pushed you to write or at least it pushed you to sort of work on your material. I remember like Camille kind of talked about his act like a sculpture one time and that like I'm I'm sort of each week I'm changing I'm making the sculpture a little bit better you would watch and be like, that's a hilarious new tag. It's that early day camaraderie of figuring, trying to figure it out together and anything went. You know, I was drawn to the comedy of Brady Novak and like Ken Barnard and TJ Miller would do like really weird out there stuff.
6: Yeah, I'd like to do some characters for you guys. These are really short and strange. Uh, So if you didn't like the more abstract material, then you're definitely not gonna like this,
4: but just bear with me, it'll all be over soon. This first character, this is like a hip-hop guy, but when he laughs, he laughs like a young Asian schoolgirl.
6: <laughs> Yo, what's up, dude? You want a club later? Yeah, I'm about to hit that up. If I'm lucky, i am be hitting something else up later on, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 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 this
4: next character, this is a guy who, uh, whenever he's trying to think of something, he hums to himself, but the only music he's ever heard is heavy metal.
6: How long have I lived here? I'll have to think about that. (laughs) How about six months? In
2: 2003, due to the runaway success of American Idol, CBS acquires the rights to Star Search, the old syndicated talent competition show, reboots the brand,
3: And participating in the stand-up competition is Chicago's own John Roy. And I just did my best stuff I had at the beginning because I'm like, don't save anything. You don't know there's going to be anything. And then at the end, they gave me a check and they uh, said you're the winner. And then I went back to Chicago. I love all races. It's white people that scare me. Scary white people are the scariest people in the world. If I see a black guy and he scares me, There's always a voice in my head that's like, John, that's just racism. Don't judge him by skin color, what's wrong with you? But if you see a scary white guy, you know. That son of a bitch is dangerous. Put your blizzard down. Back out of the Dairy Queen. not worth it. (laughs) Think about it. Who's the scariest guy in prison? The white guy. Why? Because he's guilty. (laughs) Well, I I couldn't believe that I had won. And and Arsenio goes, and he, he set me up in a weird way. He goes... Is there anyone out out there that didn't believe in you that you want to kind of get back at now? And I said, no, but I want to let everybody know out there in the lion's den doing their set every Monday for free, that if I can do it, so can you. And then Arsenio loved that and then went, lion's den, lion's den, lion's den.
4: And all of us watching cheered, like we fucking freaked out. It was really emotional. He had been away winning. We had all been watching, sometimes at the lion's den. He won hundred grand, and when he came in, everybody cheered. It was like fucking Rudy.
1: And I remember us watching it, and he said, thank you to Lion's Den. He's going to drink for free here <laughs> until this bar closes, which it did a couple years later. Again, I want to reiterate, the Lion's Den, or as those
2: kids called it, the den, was an open mic. You could sign up for that. Sometimes they'd have 60, 70 people. But there was a book show as
3: well in Chicago, at a place called the Lincoln Lodge. Lincoln Lodge, in its original inception, was in the Lincoln Restaurant, which was
0: an ancient diner on Lincoln Avenue that had a giant picture of Lincoln. The Lincoln Lodge was run by Mark Geary, the same guy who ran the Red Lion open mic. But in the back, you you had a a stage that Geary had pretty much built himself and a lighting rig.
7: I think the Lincoln Lodge worked because Geary uh, was pretty unwavering in his vision. He would transform it every weekend. It was just an open room that he would cart a stage in, curtains, spotlight. He was committed to doing things right. He put so much effort into making that its own satellite effort of weirdness and having music involved and having, you know, like pre got precursor guys to Reggie Watts and anybody who helped run the show, anybody who helped produce it got stage time, which I sometimes had my odds with. I'm like, just because they, they they're Good with carpentry. Doesn't mean that they're going to be funny. But he's like, no, you help put the show on? That was his utopia.
5: I just had heard it was another cool place to go. This is
0: Emily Gordon.
5: I loved it. I thought it, the audience was very excited to be there. I thought they did a good job of creating like this very, we're all in this together kind of clubhouse vibe, which I shamelessly used later on in my own career.
10: The Lodge was, they had packed shows every night. I think that was or every week they had a packed room. Lions Zen is this marathon show yeah. where everyone's got three minutes to get up there, boom, get out. And Lincoln Lodge was like our zanies. Hey
11: guys, I like you. I, uh, I, uh, don't you hate it uh, uh, when you're all like, oh, no, 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 you know? And then everybody else are so like, woo, uh, woo, uh, uh, <laughs> isn't that the worst? No, but I don't know a lot of Spanish, though, I, um...
0: This is a clip of Nick Vaderat on Fallon.
11: It's actually, uh, I was actually at a garage sale over the summer, and they had one of those, um, uh, Rosetta Stone, learning how to speak Spanish CDs, you ever seen these? And, uh, it was, like, ten bucks, and I was like, that's a steal, you know, so I stole it, and, uh... Then <laughs> I get home, I, I open up a CD, and it's, it's, they're all scratched, that's why they were so cheap, you know, but... I think it's good I noticed that because I was planning on doing the lazy man's version of uh, learning where you play it while you're sleeping to you try to subconsciously learn Spanish. <laughs> like what if I did that and I was in Mexico, like, hola, que está, está, di, di, di,
2: di, di, do, 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 a parallel to high school where you're in a certain class and there's comedians that started before you. They may seem like seniors to you and sometimes they move off to a different city and you move up and now you're a sophomore and a junior. And, and in a way, even though you may surpass this person in your own fame or your own career, those who came before you will always seem like an upperclassman.
3: Dwayne Kennedy was the first comedian we ever saw in Chicago that was doing really smart political personal stuff. He had a whole persona and we were like, "Okay, that that's it." That was the first like You feel like he was the yeah, guy. Yeah, he was the guy. And I think Matt Bronger will tell you that too and 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 Kyle like Dwayne Kennedy was the guy that we were all like, "Okay, that's that stand up. That's what we ought to be aiming for."
8: I'm not I'm not real re- religious, man, but I do like like gospel tunes. I like like Negro spirituals, you know what I mean? I like Negroes with spirits, you know what I mean? I, I
0: this like, is a clip of Dwayne Kennedy on Letterman.
8: I like Swing Low, Sweet Cherry. That's a brilliant song, man. But you have to listen to it because it had more than one meaning, you know what I mean? It was like, it was not just an ethereal aspiration to God. It also meant get ready because we get ready to get out of here you know that was the code it was like swing low sweet chariot you know the underground railroad is coming for to carry us home you know what i mean or to detroit or wherever it is you want to be dropped off you know and you gotta think it took a brilliant mind man to be able to write a song on that many levels you know because you know it was probably a lot of slaves who tried to write spirituals (laughs) <laughs> but just wasn't really that good at concealing the message. And <laughs> you know, it'd be like, uh, uh, hey, 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 Joshua, won't you, won't you sing that spiritual I hear you've been working on? Uh, all right, Mouser. Uh, oh. Tonight at 8 30, gonna get some shovels and bash white folk in here. 2006,
12: uh, Kane was not there anymore. Bronger was not there anymore. They had come to LA. This is Cameron Esposito. Pete Holmes had just left, he was in New York at the time. Kumel, Nanjiani, Hannibal Burris were like, Class ahead of me. They were still on the scene.
2: You remember the first sets you did in Chicago?
12: I had never done stand up. There was a new theater that was opening. I think it's still around. It's called the Guerrilla Tango Theater. I was still living at my folks' house, was like using their dial up internet to Google like best comics in Chicago and then MySpace all those people, like cold messaged people like, I am a new comic in town. I've got this great new show. Come do the show. Do you
2: remember who the comics were? Oh,
12: literally everybody that you have heard of. Kumel and, and Hannibal both did this show. Like any 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 person that now lives out here. I also didn't have a microphone. I didn't realize that stand-up required a microphone because I came up from the improv world. And then from that I got hired at the lodge, the Lincoln Lodge. That was like the best place in town to perform. And the Lodge was like you had to go through an interview process. There's a cast of like, I think it was eight people or something like that, where you just get more stage time. Like you can perform every two weeks or something like that. And other than that, you're getting up once a year. So I used to be on this party planning committee. <laughs> and one day, <laughs> and one day, just looking around this committee room and I suggested what I thought we needed for our party. I was like, oh. I- I think this party needs whack a mole. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> that is how I want to party. I want to hit animatronic moles on the head with a mallet. <laughs> but I said, I think this party needs whack a mole. Another lady on the committee looks at me and she goes, okay, okay. I believe it's pronounced guacamole. <laughs> We see the world in a different way. She and I. I was talking about a game you could play at Chuck E. Cheese. She was talking about a Mexican appetizer. That didn't make my life worse. It drastically improved it. Because in that moment, I got to see the world through her eyes. I got to understand how she saw me. To her, I am an adult woman who's been walking into Chipotles for years. (laughs) Just going like, oh, whack-a-mole's extra?
0: In 2008, Cameron Esposito started the Feminine Comique, an all-female stand-up class.
12: You remember that Christopher Hitchens article that was like, women aren't funny? Why women aren't funny? And then every publication and every writer seemed to have to have a take on his take. By that time I think there were five women in the scene. It was like me and the Potterbaugh sisters and Beth, Stelling and Jenna Friedman. So these articles were being written and I was like two years in a stand-up or something like that and getting calls from like the trib to go on record talking about how brutal it was to be a woman. It was brutal but I'll tell you how you continue to have a terrible time. Be the person on record being like, fuck this scene, you know? And I just, I just started to feel used, you know? And I thought, I wonder if there's a different way to address this issue. And so I approached Mark Geary, who's still the person behind the Lincoln Lodge, and I said, I wanna teach a class for women. I'll come up with a curriculum. It'll be eight sessions, and at the end, The woman will do a five-minute set at the Lodge for a special show.
2: When we were speaking to the comedians from this scene, the name Pat Bryce kept coming up time and time again as this great comedian who, unfortunately, suffered an untimely death. And many pointed to that moment as maybe the beginning of the end of this golden age of Chicago comedy.
6: I get myself an interview. The guy greets me at the door, shakes my hand, and takes me into a conference room. This is a clip of Pat Bryce. He sits down at this conference room. We're about 15 seconds into the interview. When he looks up from the table, looks me in the eyes, and goes, how many pennies can fit in this room? (laughs) Swear to God, that's the exact question that he asked me. Now, I'm going to help you guys out. He doesn't want the correct answer. He wants to look across and see a comfortable, calm guy do reasonable math with this. He just wants to see someone work it out. He wants you to look around the room. Okay, this looks like a 10 foot by 12 foot room. I'm gonna assume maybe this many pennies could fit in a one foot by one foot square. That's what he wants to hear. Apparently what he doesn't want to hear is this. I'm gonna say a billion. I'm gonna say a billion pennies. I might as well have said, fuck you. I might as well have said four. Four giant pennies. Well, they have to be the size I'm thinking of in my brain. Do you know the size I'm thinking of? I swear to god, I turned into a seventh grader. I had no I was the uncoolest guy ever. I was backpedaling the whole time. Five minutes later he goes, Name something good about yourself. I go, I'm not a racist. He was Filipino. That hurt worse that hurt that hurt more than the pennies. Unfortunately,
2: we can't get to all of the great comedians who populated this time period. Some still do comedy, some I've become writers, directors. What they created out of the ashes of the comedy bust
3: continues to this day. So now you you start to see Chicago Underground Comedy in the beat kitchen. And you see, uh, you know, it's comedians you should know. And like all these sort of. The, the infrastructure was starting to come in place that subsequent generations of Chicago comics like Drew Michael and Cameron Esposito and Beth Stelling and Lisa Traeger, they came out of the scene that sort of the Den comics built.
5: Uh, I'm originally from Ohio, uh, a lot of people in Ohio don't realize that you can put all of your things into a bag and then leave. <laughs>
0: This is a clip of Beth Stelling.
5: Scoot right on out of town. Um, one of my first jobs was at a bagel shop. Uh, so as you can imagine, a lot of times I was serving bagels uh, straight to my face. I gained a little wink. Yeah. I took the job, uh, why we all take jobs in food service, uh, for the sexual harassment. So, yeah. That worked out great. I think it was around Christmas time that my boss, uh, my boyfriend, my boss, um, he announced that we were having a weight loss challenge, uh, which sounds illegal, um, so I quit. I usually tend to date potheads. It's kind of like my thing. I don't, I don't know why. You know, I guess, I guess they can't leave if they're already gone. Um,
0: The History of Stand-Up is written and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks to Nate Craig, Emily DeRezis, Matt Dwyer, Mike Elder and the Box Angeles Podcast, Cameron Esposito, check out her show, Query, wherever you get your podcasts, Emily V. Gordon, who you heard at the beginning of the podcast being portrayed by Zoe Kazan when she heckled Kumail.
5: To call what I did heckling is a <laughs> bit, but I all I he said is anyone from Pakistan, and I said, woo, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I thought, what a funny thing for him to play off of. I was helping. Oh, God, what a nightmare. I hear how I sound. <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't.
0: <laughs> Pete Holmes, who has a great new book called Comedy Sex God, available wherever books are sold. Kyle Kinane also has a podcast called The Boogie Monster. Jimmy Pardo, Kevin Pollock, John Roy, Nick Vatterot, and the Abraham Comedy Archives. If you want to learn more about this era and scene of stand-up comedy, be sure to check out the article When Lions Roared by Steve Heisler in the Chicago Reader. It was a great help for us when we put together this episode. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Please follow us on Twitter at histofstandup and online at thehistoryofstandup.com. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks.